Welcome to episode 110 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today we get to speak to retired agent Oliver Buck Ravel, who served in the FBI for 30 years. During his bureau career, he assumed numerous leadership roles, culminating with his promotion to Associate Deputy Director. In this episode, Buck Ravel reviews Operation Goldenrod and the capture of Fazwa Yunus, the first overseas apprehension of an international terrorist. He also provides frank and transparent insight into the public perception of the FBI today. Operation Goldenrod was the first time the new extraterritorial jurisdiction approved by Congress was used. This legislation provided the FBI with the authority to investigate terrorist acts in which Americans were taken hostage, no matter where the acts occurred. Buck Ravel is the author of A G-Man's Journey, a legendary career inside the FBI from the Kennedy assassination to the Oklahoma City bombing. Currently, he is the founder and president of a global business and security consulting firm based in Dallas, Texas. You can find out more about the firm's services at the Ravel Group International website. It was absolutely an honor to speak with Associate Deputy Director Buck Ravel. In this interview, he speaks openly. During this interview, he speaks openly about the FBI's brilliance and the FBI's flaws. But before we get to the interview, I just have a few things that I want to remind you about. The first one is that I did have an opportunity to meet and to hear directly from new FBI director, Christopher Wray. And I have written a post about the inspiring message that he gave to current agents in the Philadelphia division and the handful of retired agents, including myself, invited to attend that meeting. In my April email to reader team members, I'm going to be sharing my thoughts about what Director Wray told us. So if you're not yet a member of my reader team, please sign up. You can go to my website, jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up or go to my Facebook author page, Jerry Williams Author, and you'll see the sign up button there. The other thing I want to remind you is that I don't do Patreon and I don't have ads on my show. But if you do want to support me, and you like crime fiction, I invite you to check out my crime novel, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry, which was inspired by a real case in the Philadelphia division. You can also purchase Pay to Play for someone you know who loves crime fiction. My next novel, Greedy Givers, will be released in June. But if true crime books are more your speed, just remember when you join my FBI reader team, I'll send you the FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs written by the very agents who have been interviewed 
on this podcast. I have nearly 35 books for you to choose from. Thank you for your support. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am absolutely honored to have as my guest today, Oliver Buck Reville. Can I call you Buck? Of course, please. Then, hi Buck, how are you? I'm doing just fine. It's a sunny day here in Dallas and uh, I'm ready to talk to you. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I know there are so many things that we could talk about because I actually have spent the last few days reading your book, which is called A Genius Journey, A Legendary Career Inside the FBI from the Kennedy Assassination to the Oklahoma City Bombing. It's 500 pages of FBI history. But we have to narrow everything down because we don't have enough time to cover 30 years (laughs) of history. So what have we decided that you're going to concentrate on as far as a case? Well, the first rendition, uh, international rendition of a uh, terrorist under the uh, statutes that uh, we had just acquired in the uh, mid-'80s called Operation Goldenrod, and I think that's one that... uh, the audience might be interested in. I had oversight responsibility. I was the executive assistant director of investigations in the Bureau at that time, and the structure of the Bureau then was all operational activities uh, went through that particular office, uh, CID, the Intelligence Division, and the uh, Office of Liaison International Affairs were all under the uh, executive assistant director of investigations. So that uh, put me in that position. Plus, I represented the uh, Bureau and Justice Department uh, uh, at the National Security Council, um, the uh, the coordination subgroup of the National Security Council, uh, which uh, was involved in the planning at the government level the, uh, of uh, major operations and coordination between agencies. I point out, though, uh, just one thing of the title of the book, A G-Men's Journal, that was my part, and then all the other uh, legendary career, et cetera, that was the publisher. I didn't characterize it that way. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't, but it's a, it's a good way to let us know what is packed inside that book. So I understand why the publisher wanted to, to have that part added. Now, the case that you're talking about is going to be really interesting, I think, for everyone listening because we have talked many times about the FBI having this extraterritorial jurisdiction. But I don't, we have never talked about what happened that got Congress to decide to provide that and the case, you know, the, the first case where it was actually used. So I think this is going to be fascinating. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start ahead of that? You know, what yeah, happened? Yeah, let's go back, uh, uh, the period of the 80s, people think that uh, terrorism didn't hit the United States until 9-11. Uh, that's uh, very short-sighted. Uh, we were in the midst of uh, a number of terrorist activities and the target of numerous terrorist organizations, uh, essentially all during the uh, 80s on up until, uh, obviously, 9-11. But in 1985, uh, President Reagan uh, was so fed up with the uh, attacks of terrorists on us, particularly in the Middle East, 
Uh, we had the Marine barracks bombing in, in Lebanon in 83. We had the uh, bombing of the U.S. Embassy there twice. We had a number of Americans, uh, I think there were 12 at the time, being held hostage inside of Lebanon. And then we had ongoing problems with Iran, of course, who had held our embassy personnel hostage until the, the day that uh, Reagan came into office. And so uh, we had also had issues with uh, with Libya uh, over uh, their support of the uh, Abu Nidal organization. Uh, we had the PFLP, uh, which is part of the Palestinian groups uh, carrying out terrorist attacks, uh, including the Rome and Vienna airports. Uh, we had a number of terrorist organizations in Europe that were uh, essentially uh, communist-based organizations, Red Brigades and the various uh, communist-inspired organizations in Europe uh, that uh, didn't necessarily target the United States, but our, our uh, personnel were frequently victims of the terrorist attacks they carried out uh, throughout uh, Europe. Uh, even uh, globally, we had the Japanese Red Army carrying out attacks in, in Asia as, as well as other places. So in 85, uh, President Reagan called a task force and put it under the leadership of Vice President Bush. Now, that's the, the first Bush, of course. And this task force uh, uh, had uh, eight cabinet officers uh, and the FBI and CIA directors uh, as uh, the members. And then there was a subgroup, which was the operational heads of these various agencies that coordinated the activities of the task force and actually ended up both making the recommendations and then uh, implementing the instructions once the recommendations were approved. Coming out of that was a new emphasis on the importance of law enforcement and security uh, in addition to defense and, and uh, State Department uh, issues uh, in carrying out the international opposition to ongoing terrorist activities. We had had a new statute passed in uh, 1984 uh, on the kidnapping uh, and holding hostage of Americans. And then in 1986, the uh, Anti-Terrorist Act, which uh, made it illegal for any country to carry out a terrorist attack against U.S. persons or, or property. And both were uh, incorporated into uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction. Uh, meaning that the FBI, uh, as the U.S. Uh, law enforcement entity, uh, was given jurisdiction on any case involving the holding of an American or hostage or a terrorist act against Americans, as though that uh, crime had actually occurred uh, on U.S. territory. So that's where it became known as extraterritorial statutes. Coming out of the task force, uh, we uh, had a, a number of recommendations that focused on increasing the ability to operate in not only the intelligence arena, but in the national security and law enforcement arena. And uh, I was given the role of uh, increasing our involvement uh, in things like uh, Interpol, uh, the I International Association Chiefs of Police, and various other interagency groups, including domestically. When uh, we were looking uh, during the 86-87 at ways to deal with the hostage-taking uh, in, in Lebanon. One of the things we were trying to do was focus on uh, an individual that was involved in these activities that might be vulnerable to apprehension outside of uh, Lebanon and be brought back to the United States for trial, thereby becoming the, the first test case under these new statutes. 
and uh, that's what then brought about this whole uh, structure of what became known as, as Operation Goldenrod. So, tell us what would happen before all of these, all of this new legislation was put in place. That there was an American overseas who had been kidnapped or involved in some type of assault, murdered. What would the FBI be able to do? Well, the only thing we could do at that time would be provide uh, any sort of uh, assistance that would be short of taking jurisdiction and bringing a person to trial in the United States. We could provide forensic assistance. For instance, we sent uh, uh, a investigative team into Lebanon in 83 to investigate the uh, Marine Corps barracks bombing. Now, the FBI had no jurisdiction uh, on that, but the Commandant of the Marine Corps, P.X. Kelly, called me and asked me to to send a team. I checked with Judge Webster, and we got permission from the State Department, and we sent a team uh, into Lebanon to do the both forensic and structure an investigation that would lead us to determine who was responsible. And by the way, uh, in doing so, we also identified the structure of the terrorist apparatus in Lebanon, uh, which uh, became very important in the uh, targeting for Operation Goldenrod. Okay. But once you got all of that information, once you obtained, you know, the evidence and the forensic, then you had to turn it over to that particular country for their uh, investigation and prosecution, if there ever was one. Well, the, we would provide them uh, reports through the regular uh, diplomatic channels, uh, letters rogatory, and uh, through our legal attaché program, we would provide them with uh, direct uh, information support. We would even conduct uh, laboratory examinations and, on occasion, uh, you know, provide expert testimony. But the fact of it is we were always in an auxiliary role, and we had no direct authority to take action other than providing assistance. Uh, so uh, it, it, it kept the United States uh, and the Bureau as its representative essentially uh, in the back seat, not able to really drive an investigation or prosecution, absent the uh, legal jurisdiction to do so. Was there a particular case that predicated or initiated the desire to, to change that? Well, there were a number of cases. Uh, we had victims in the Roman Vienna airports uh, that were both uh, that were uh, American citizens. We had, uh, of course, the hostage taking in in Lebanon, the bombings uh, there, the ongoing activities where, particularly the uh, Palestinian-based uh, terrorist organizations, uh, which were op- also operating uh, throughout the Middle East and particularly in Lebanon, uh, were more and more often focusing on the United States and its its role uh, in trying to broker uh, some sort of peace in, in the Middle East. So uh, it became uh, you know evident that uh, these attacks on the United States citizens and properties uh, in the, uh, the Middle East were going to continue, and it was extremely frustrating to President Reagan to have these Americans being held hostage and then Virtually on a daily basis, uh, there'd be information coming out about you know some some threat against the United States for for taking action. Uh, we were in a very contentious relationship with Iran, and we had only quasi support from uh, other Middle Eastern countries that uh, found excuses not to do what they needed to do to really support our counter terrorist activities. So basically, we wanted to take control of 
matters that involved American citizens. We wanted to make sure that the people responsible were brought to justice. Absolutely, and, and that's uh, the basis for our support of the two statutes that Congress passed and uh, working with both the Justice Department and the uh, State Department uh, in setting up a mechanism whereby we could that could uh, accentuate uh, this process. And it became extremely important after 9-11 because after 9-11, a number of these operations took place that uh, our pioneering operation in Goldenrod uh, set the uh, the route uh, that was possible there. It was it was a process that, you know, required us to find uh, assets. And in Lebanon at the time, because of... Uh, uh, what had happened, we had no American assets. The CIA had no operatives there that could, could get the information on the hostages or their locations or who took the hostages. So the first thing we had to do was essentially go through the American agencies that had interest in that area and find uh, an asset. And fortunately, uh, Jack Lawn, a former FBI agent, was the uh, administrator of DEA at the time. And I talked with Jack and... Uh, they had some sources operating out of Cyprus who were actually Lebanese and then went back and forth to Lebanon on a frequent basis. And uh, they were able to identify uh, an asset uh, that was operating for DEA who had that kind of capability. And uh, we asked the CIA to operate that asset with uh, DEA's approval to focus on finding uh, a particular individual that we had identified as the target an individual by the name of Fawa Yunus, and to see if we could pin him down and determine if uh, he would be the kind of target that we could manipulate into an exposed circumstance where we could take him into custody and bring him back to the United States for trial. And that's what essentially Operation Goldenrod uh, became uh, the vehicle for doing. At the time, the U.S. government to facilitate its counter-terrorist operations through a, an entity uh, known as the Coordination Subgroup, or the CSG, which met at least weekly uh, at the White House. Uh, the, the people involved were an operational authority within their agencies and could speak for their agencies on uh, operations and uh, coordination purposes. The CSG uh, focused on this uh, as a task, and we were able to go forward with a program that uh, allowed us to identify a target, then uh, determine the assets that were needed, and then to get the plan approved all the way to the President of the United States. And that's where it took us. Uh, the CIA was able to move the DEA informant back and forth and to identify uh, the location and the propensities of uh, Fawaz Yunus that gave us the vulnerability to know that he would be could be lured out of uh, Lebanon to Cyprus, and we felt like he could probably be lured out to sea because our intention was to make the arrest in international waters and not cross any national boundaries or borders until we actually landed him in the United States. So that, of course, involved use of the uh, U.S. military, and so we had uh, the DEA informant, uh, the CIA operation in, in uh, Larnaca, in Cyprus, and we had uh, the uh, the FBI carrying out the operation, uh, and uh, then the Justice Department uh, handling the prosecution. So it was uh, truly a, an interagency planning and uh, operational execution joint operation throughout the uh, the process. Could you tell us again who 
this terrorist is? Yes, his name was Fawaz Yunus. He was a captain in the Amal militia, and he led the hijacking of several aircraft, uh, including uh, uh, two that had Americans on board, which that that caused the statute to be violated. Uh, and he was in contact uh, not only with the Amal, but with Hezbollah. Now, f- frankly, our number one target was an individual by the name of Haj Mugnia. He was the one who actually carried out the bombing of the embassy and the marine barracks, and he had personally uh, tortured a number of the of the uh, hostages that were being held. Uh, he was uh, directly involved in all of the operational activities of Hezbollah. But we couldn't get anybody next to him, and we couldn't get him out of the country. We waited trying to do that for some time and decided we needed to step back and take the next available target so that we could both exercise the jurisdiction, get it legally uh, proved through the court system, and then also send a signal into the Middle East that, you know, you can't just operate with the impunity because the U.S. government can now come and get you and, and take you back for trial in the United States. So Eunice became the uh, available target that met the profile that we were looking for, had a high level within the terrorist organizations, was well-known, and had directly been involved uh, in uh, in heading up operations that uh, violated these laws. Can you give us just a, I just want people to be able to visualize how important this was and what type of person he was. And I think the best way to do that is if you could give us, you know, like maybe two of the terrorist activities involving, you know, that he was involved in. Can you, can you share two of them? Just give us an, an overview. Yeah, he was involved in uh, TW-847, which was an American, uh, of course, uh, uh, flight, uh, and uh, uh, where they uh, held hostages and, and actually uh, one of the uh, people killed was an American sailor. And then uh, a, 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 a flight uh, that was uh, actually uh, an Air Jordan flight uh, on which there were three Americans, and uh, uh, they flew all over the Middle East trying to carry out a, a message to uh, the Arab League, uh, but then uh, had to come back and landed in uh, Lebanon, uh, Beirut, uh, Beirut International Airport, and blew up uh, aircraft. At the same time, they made video recordings of what they were doing for propaganda purposes, and including Yunus making the statement. So we had videotape uh, of him claiming uh, responsibility as the aircraft was burning behind him and, uh, you know, quite flagrant uh, in their thumbing their nose at not just the United States, but essentially all the civilized world. And he had been involved in making contact with other hostages uh, that we were aware of uh, in the process. So he became a secondary target, but a very important one to carry out the uh, mission that we wanted to to undertake to demonstrate to the terrorists and to the governments in the Middle East that uh, we were not uh, going to be sitting back and, and uh, simply allowing these things to go forward without taking direct action. I can't wait to hear how you went about this. You know, I did watch the FBI files video, and of course I read the chapter in, in your book, and with all the different agencies involved and the fact that you, know, you were trying to move him from you know one place to another you know, all the things that had to be coordinated. Can you take us from the beginning in the planning stages and how this happened? 
Well, within the FBI, the uh, terrorism section, which at the time was in the uh, criminal division, the CID, had the lead, uh, and the Washington field office uh, had the case because there had never been a actual action in the United States. So it was in the WFO that uh, the case was signed, and the uh, case agent was a uh, an agent by the name of Tom Hansen. The terrorism section at the time was uh, led uh, by Steve Pomerantz, and then the deputy assistant director uh, of CID, and uh, at the time, let's see, Floyd Clark was the assistant director. So they were all involved uh, throughout the process. Uh, the, the Washington field office, case agents, the CID at headquarters, my office, and Bob Ricks was the deputy assistant director, and he became uh, very directly involved from CID. And at the Justice Department, we were dealing, uh, I was dealing with the Associate Attorney General, and we dealt uh, obviously with uh, uh, line attorneys there. Uh, Vicki Tunzing uh, was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General. Uh, she became uh, directly involved, and she headed up the uh, unit within the department, which was responsible for uh, terrorist uh, prosecutions. And uh, at the uh, agency, uh, Dewey Claridge was the director of the Counterterrorism Center. He was a, a very senior CIA official, and he also sat on the coordination subgroup. We had uh, Ambassador uh, Jerry Bremer, who was the ambassador at large for counterterrorism for the State Department, and he later became uh, somewhat well-known as uh, President uh, Bush II's uh, emissary in Iraq after uh, Desert Storm. And we had uh, Richard Armitage, who was Assistant Secretary of Defense, very uh, influential, and, and later became the Deputy Secretary of State. So it was a, a group that uh, uh, had... Uh, access to the leadership of the government through their departments and could speak for their departments. And in most instances, uh, such as in my case, we had the operational responsibility to carry out uh, whatever was agreed to. So the planning from the case agent and the field office and the uh, counterterrorism section or the terrorism section of CID were directly involved in a day-to-day planning process, uh, target identification and coming up with various uh, potential plans, and then at the uh, executive level, my counterparts and myself on the coordination subgroup, and then we dealt with the cabinet officers. I dealt with both Director Webster and Attorney General Meese. We, we knew that once we came up with a workable plan, that it was going to be uh, it was going to be authorized by President Reagan, and that we we could uh, go forward fairly quickly. The necessity to bring in other agencies was was evident. We couldn't do it without them. Obviously, the CIA uh, was operating in areas that, that we were not and could not. Uh, the Defense Department had uh, both the assets uh, and capabilities to take us where we needed to go and provide security while we carried out our operations. Uh, and then the State Department would uh, handle any cleanup that was necessary. And, of course, Justice had the responsibility for the prosecution. And uh, I, I got involved in the planning process, the execution of the plan, and then ultimately in testifying in court, uh, having to justify uh, the taking of an individual in, into custody and bringing him back to the United States before a rather skeptical judge at the time. But uh, we did get the case prosecuted, and uh, we got the uh, yeah, Junis, uh convicted, and we sent a signal uh, to the countries in the Middle East uh, that the times had changed and that there would be a more proactive role on the part of the U.S. government in, in protecting its citizens and property from terrorism. 
So where was Yunus? Where was he when you okay, decided Eunice was that actually, uh, he was in Beirut. He is, is actually was his cousin, a friend uh, by the name of Hamdan, who was the asset. And Hamdan uh, went over and convinced Yunus that he wanted uh, to do a drug deal uh, with uh, some Americans that he knew that were operating in the uh, Mediterranean that were actually uh, being sought by various other government entities for drug trafficking, and that this group, uh, and we use the, the name Joseph as far as the uh, uh, the individual who wanted to do the deal, was looking for drugs coming out of Lebanon for distribution in his network, and that if uh, Eunice uh, would meet with him, we could work out a deal, and there would be a, a direct exchange of uh, drugs for money uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, and that uh, this would be a very lucrative deal for for him and his associates. Hamdan was able to uh, convince uh, Eunice to uh, to come to uh, Cyprus. They agreed uh, that they would undertake this uh, activity. Uh, the CIA was there uh, under Dewey Claridge, you know, monitoring this. And so uh, we it came down to we now had an individual who we knew was carrying out terrorist operations who was willing to expose himself in area where we could arrest him, meaning offshore, to carry out a undercover drug deal, which was in fact not a drug deal at all, but it was an apprehension operation by the, the Bureau. We got the Navy uh, to provide the support for us. Uh, obviously, uh, we couldn't have done this without the Navy, and they assigned a uh, task force uh, under a Commodore to work directly with us. Uh, they gave us a uh, ship. Uh, well, they didn't give it to us, but they loaned us the use of the ship, <laughs> uh, the USS Butte, which has an interesting uh, connotation to the Bureau's history uh, as far as Butte's concerned. Right. Uh, I, well, we should, we, that's an inside joke, but we should probably share that. <laughs> well, uh, that became the disciplinary office for Hoover for when, a, when an SAC or an ASAC uh, messed up. Uh, they get assigned to Butte, so it became <laughs> known as the Siberia of the FBI. And so, when uh, when the USS Butte was the ship we were going to use, uh, it just had sort of an ironic uh, connotation to it that uh, the Butte was striking back. <laughs> so, uh, those of us inside the bureau who knew what that meant, it, it was uh, rather comical. Um, uh, the, the Navy provided uh, an ammunition support ship, uh, which uh, really suited our purposes. Uh, it had plenty of storage capacity. Uh, it had quarters that we could utilize. It had a landing deck for two helicopters, and it had a rapid-fire five-inch cannon, and it also had uh, substantial uh, anti-aircraft batteries, so we could carry out any sort of defensive operation from there. And uh, we included in the operation uh, the case agent uh, and, and uh, uh, the HRT and then agents who had their licenses to operate uh, yachts at sea and then a couple of volunteer female agents who were there to you know, provide the proper background. It would look like a, a drug trafficking operation. And we all infil- exfiltrated out of the United States independently and then uh, uh, met up in Athens, uh, or didn't meet in Athens, came to Athens, and then the uh, individuals going on the yacht went from there. The, the uh, yacht was uh, rented out of Athens, and the operational elements uh, included the HRT commander and uh, the case agent and, and myself and 
uh, you know, some of the other planters were operating on, on the Butte, and we rendezvoused uh, off the coast of Larnica, and the Butte gave us a station uh, through its navigational systems that we were, uh, you know, 12.2, 12.3 miles uh, at sea, 12 miles being the the uh, international boundary. Our yacht also carried out an elliptical course on a bearing from Larnica where the motorboat coming out that was being run by the CIA asset bringing units uh, would be the only ones that would actually be functioning there and they would come out to sea and be in international waters when the actual uh, arrest was made. The yacht was able to stay in international waters during the entire operation, but be close enough in where the motorboat coming out uh, from Larnaca in, in Cyprus would uh, be able to take a just a bearing heading out. And you can't see that far out, 12 miles, you can't see. So they had to come out a bearing and intercept uh, the yacht, which also uh, was being guided, given guidance by our, our radar uh, on the uh, Butte in order to stay within the, the area where we felt we would get uh, the best opportunity to intersect the motorboat with the yacht and then uh, you know provide support directly from the, the Butte. At the time of the operation, we couldn't bring our uh, shoulder weapons out. It would have been difficult. So on board uh, the Butte, uh, they had M14s. Now, M14s have been out of use uh, in the U.S. military, except in the, uh, on board ships. Uh, since uh, I was in the Marine Corps, I trained on the uh, M1 first and then on the M14 in the uh, early 60s. So uh, we got the uh, uh, the team on the view to, uh, including myself, went to the fantail and uh, exercised uh, snapping our 14s till we became familiar with them again. And uh, they were then available, two of them on board the yacht and then uh, a whole team of HRT on board a H-47 helicopter. It was not the primary helicopter I flew in the Marine Corps, but I had some time in it, so I was, I was very familiar with it and its capabilities. And we were essentially leaning forward at the time of the apprehension in, in case there was any intercession. Uh, you had a lot of, of not only terrorists, but pirates operating in that area, and concern was that uh, they see a couple of uh, boats, a yacht, and so forth, and they would come out and, and try and, and uh, either the terrorists take down uh, for their purposes or the pirates uh, for their purposes, uh, you know, take down our operation. So we had to be ready to uh, intercede very quickly, and we were able to do so. So uh, when it finally came out, we had some problems with Eunice uh, getting drunk the night before and chasing around after uh, ladies of the night, which, of course, was the CIA's problem, but it did carry it over to ours as well. And that threw our operation back a couple of hours, and then they lost their bearing coming out, and uh, we had to uh, expand our, our search area for them. We had some very, uh, so we say, uh, anxious hours uh, there waiting for the operation. Once he came in sight and came on board and was uh, quickly uh, taken down, we had an FBI agent who spoke Arabic, was actually a, a native of uh, the Middle East, and um, Dimitri was able to give him his um, warning uh, waiver under the Miranda, which he acknowledged. And uh, we didn't interview him. I went over on the uh, captain's launch uh, with uh, the uh, case agent and uh, a couple of other agents, uh, and we brought them back to the USS Butte, and that's where the uh, next part of the tale takes place. 
What was his reaction when he discovers that instead of meeting a drug dealer, you know, he's under arrest by the FBI? Well, I saw him within, I say, five minutes of his arrest. Uh, he was uh, sitting on the side of the deck uh, looking very dejected. I had Dimitri ask him uh, if he was okay, and he shook his head, and then he says, you're Americans. <laughs> he said, and he was so relieved that we were not Israelis that he actually didn't relax, but he certainly became more relaxed than he had been because he thought the Israelis had come out to get him and uh, he was not looking forward uh, with any uh, keen anticipation to his treatment by the Israelis. So when he found out we were Americans, he was uh, uh, he was somewhat relieved. And when we got him to the ship and uh, he had been given his, uh, his rights and had signed and agreed to them, he was uh, quite amenable to talking to us, not only about the instances where he was directly involved, but into what we were more interested in was his intelligence on the groups, who was in the groups, how they were operating, who was who had which hostages, where those hostages were, the last he knew, and the involvement of various uh, both political and other organizational entities in the ongoing activities there in in uh, Lebanon that were hidden from us because we had lost our embassy and our station, the CIA station, and everything in Lebanon had been wiped out. So we were getting new intelligence on a very important issue of primary concern to the president and, and the American public as well. You were able to, to show the terrorists that the United States was serious and they were going to begin taking action, and you were also able to get valuable intelligence. Yes, and that became a, a, an issue that uh, I'll talk to uh, in a minute uh, because our, our court system still has problems on, on dealing with uh, uh, terrorist issues from time to time. But, uh, yes, uh, that was our intention to uh, to demonstrate to the, the terrorist organizations and nations supporting them uh, that we will no longer have to sit back and wait and, and operate through other countries, but that we could exercise the capabilities of the United States directly and then secondly, that we had a uh, capability in the U.S. courts, the federal courts, to bring a case uh, against foreign nationals who had never set foot in the United States, but had, who had violated the new statutes which uh, had given us extraterritorial jurisdiction. And we're virtually the only country in the world that now exercises, openly exercises, uh, that uh, legal right. Uh, and it's been an important part of, uh, obviously, uh, it came into use uh, after 9-11 and, and other terrorist acts uh, became an important part of, of the uh, U.S. response to, to terrorism. Absolutely. So now you have this new legislation, and you're going to take it to judges in the United States who have never used this before as far as trying a case. Right, yeah. We had, uh, as I said, Steve Trott, the Associate Attorney General, who uh, went on and is actually now a judge on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, was handling the, the, the policy level. And then Vicki Tunzing and the, uh, the section uh, in the uh, Criminal Division of Justice was uh, then working with the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in Washington, kind of going to bring the case in federal court. So uh, when we got Eunice back to the United States, uh, he was actually at that time uh, taken before a magistrate uh, and then turned over to marshals uh, who took him to Quantico and he 
he was actually housed at, at the, the Marine the Marine facility at Quantico, uh, and then uh, it started going back and forth, you know, with magistrates hearings, and uh, he had been indicted and so forth. So when it came time for trial, uh, the, the case agent Tom Harmon was testifying and so forth, but the uh, Justice Department wanted me to come in and testify uh, as to the planning process and why we carried out uh, the operation in the manner that we did and, and what we did in bringing him back to the United States and so forth. Unfortunately, during the time that uh, Eunice was uh, on the yacht, in one of two ways, uh, he was taken down uh, by the HRT fairly quickly, and uh, the, the yacht was rolling, and so he landed with his wrists built, built, uh, bent back. And then when he was on the, the captain's uh, gig, coming back from the, the yacht to the butte, uh, we were being hauled up. We actually stayed in the gig and were being brought up, and the power failed on the uh, on the winch, and we were singing, sitting there swinging in the uh, over the ocean. And uh, given all of the uh, pressures and activities that he had gone through, uh, Eunice got very sick at his stomach, and he was cuffed in front, and he leaned over uh, the gunnels and was uh, barfing into the ocean. But you could see where the imprint of the handcuffs. Uh, went right across where he had his body weight on his hands, bending over the gunnels, and that's where I think the hairline fractures came. But in any case, he he had hairline fractures, which became an issue because one of our sister agencies decided that would be an interesting item to leak to the local media. So we here we had to come out that uh, you know the FBI had captured and essentially tortured this guy, which was of course absolute nonsense. We had treated him very well because we wanted his cooperation. The only thing was, uh, when he was arrested, he was put down on the deck, and then when he was transported, he got sick, and uh, he had the handcuffs and actually had bent over. In fact, there's a picture in the book you probably saw of him actually leaning over the gunnels as we were being hoisted up into the the ship. But uh, that became an issue because the defense decided that they were going to raise the issue that we had uh, used, uh, even though he had signed the Miranda waiver, we had used uh, force in con- causing him to confess, which was total nonsense, uh, because we had videotape of him. We didn't really need his confession for the conviction. What we were looking for, uh, as I told you, was the debriefing uh, where he was cooperating and getting intelligence uh, on uh, the hostages, their, the groups involved, and, and their activities and locations. Well, the court didn't recognize the relevance of the intelligence and simply held that that uh, we had interviewed him for three days, even though he had been given his Miranda and signed him. That was excessive, and they threw out the confession. Well, we didn't need the confession, but uh, we decided, uh, Justice Department, that it needed to be appealed. So it was appealed to the circuit, uh, D.C. Circuit, and they came back and reauthorized the use of the confession, but chastised us for talking to him for three days. Well, that showed the totally ineptitude of the court in dealing with the realities of the terrorist issues and that uh, we uh, obviously that was the most important part and that's the part that was totally legal uh, and us doing so was getting all the information we could from the subject uh, at a time when he was in our lawful custody so that was a frustrating issue and uh, demonstrated to me that our court system needed to be uh, fine-tuned to deal with with uh, terrorist related issues so you were able to use the confession, and his conviction stood? The conviction stood, and he was sentenced to 35 years. 
uh, and he continued to cooperate with us, uh, as did his uh, informant, uh, who we relocated to the United States uh, with his family and put under the witness protection program. And we were able to get information from both sources over a good period of time. So it was uh, very successful in that sense. It won. It proved up the statute. We knew that we had some work to do on how we presented the cases so that the uh, courts would understand, uh, without giving away sources and methods, uh, what we were trying to do. And at the same time, uh, it did send a signal out to well, the U.S. has a new capability, and they're willing to use substantial resources to carry this out. Now, in addition to the USS Butte, the Navy uh, provided a platform from which we could launch uh, units back to the United States and that the USS Saratoga was operating in the Mediterranean. We sailed the Butte uh, from uh, uh, Cyprus uh, to the coast of uh, Sicily, and then one of the CH-47s took uh, the people uh, that were going back with Eunice to the Saratoga. I split away and... uh, uh, came back to uh, Washington. I wasn't going to be flying in the uh, shuttle aircraft because there wasn't one room, and, and they didn't need me in there anyway. They needed, to, you know, some of the operational people. So uh, I, I, I came ashore Naples and caught a flight to uh, uh, Germany, and then flew back in and actually met the uh, the arrival uh, of the uh, aircraft uh, at Andrews Air Force Base when they they brought uh, units in, and we had. Or Woody Johnson, who was the HRT commander, had been on board that uh, little SA-3 aircraft uh, along with the one other HRT operative and the uh, pilot. Uh, and it was about a, a, a 16-hour flight with three in-flight refuelings. So we had set three world records, uh, the longest flight from a carrier, and uh, then the we had three mid-air refuelings, so the longest flights by uh, the KC-10s. Uh, and then uh, the longest uh, flight of any type from a, a uh, aircraft carrier and the longest flight by type. So we had set three world records, which was not our intention. But, uh, that was the uh, that's the effort that it took. And uh, the agency performed tremendously. Dewey Claridge and his crew, uh, as did uh, uh, the Navy, and sort of our uh, both our case agents and uh, HRT. Uh, it was. Uh, uh, opportunity for uh, the Bureau to show its capabilities and we were invited over to the Vice President's residence uh, there in Washington the Saturday after we got back uh, along with uh, the others that uh, could be publicly revealed and uh, the Vice President and his staff were very elated uh, as was uh, the President. We got a accommodation from the President as well so uh, that wasn't the purpose of our operation but we were glad to receive it in recognition for the extraordinary effort that had gone into the, the case. The only problem I had was that uh, Bob Ricks and Steve Pomerantz were mad at me for taking the uh, lead because they wanted to go themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but I told them, you know, RHIP. So <laughs> Before we wrap this up, I do want to know about Lebanon's response. I mean, you right. have tricked one of their citizens and taken him to the United States against his will. What was the international reaction to that? Well, at the time, Lebanon was in uh, totally fractured. We had, had uh, you know, not only the, the em- two embassy bombings and the French embassy had been bombed, we had the Marine barracks bombing, and then the hostages being held, and the ongoing operations uh, in South Lebanon of Hezbollah, 
which is a you know a foreign force operating within their own territory. So the the government of Lebanon uh, acquiesced with uh, really no no difficulty. Now, of course, those functioning groups there they were up in arms and they tried to stir up a lot of. Uh, animosity towards the United States for having the audacity to come into a foreign territory, uh, but that uh, didn't carry much weight and it quieted down fairly quickly. Uh, and there was no legal attempt on the part of uh, either Lebanon or the Arab League or anyone else to intercede in the use of this statute in, our, in prosecuting in our own courts. So, we've had a chance to go over this case review, but I cannot let you get away without talking to you about, you know, some of the history of the FBI that you've actually witnessed and been an integral part of. So you were in the FBI from 1964 to 1994, and when you left, you had reached the rank of Associate Deputy Director. Correct. You saw a lot during that time, and as I was reading your book, so much of it I either didn't know which I can't imagine was the case because I started with the FBI in 1982, or I had conveniently forgotten about. But right now, the FBI is in the news, and the public is hearing all kinds of things about the Bureau. But what amazed me when I was reading your book was that we've been in this place so many times before. Very true. We had the... uh Church and Pike Committee's uh, reports uh, on COINTELPRO uh, back, uh, you know, in the uh, early uh, 70s of activities that went on from the uh, 60s and 70s. We, of course, uh, were heavily involved in the uh, investigation of, of the president in the White House uh, with Nixon and Watergate. Uh, and, uh, you know, that involved a special prosecutor and uh, an acting director and, and all kinds of uh, trepidations uh, for the Bureau. And I was called to testify by the uh, special prosecutor and I had to uh, essentially buck the headwind on that. And then Iran-Contra. I actually had recused myself uh, because I was directly involved with the uh, White House and the National Security Council uh, and coordination, uh, as I had said, through this uh, OSG operational or this coordination subgroup, and knew quite a bit about what was going on uh, in the Iran part of the process, but knew nothing about the Contras. And I uh, recused myself because I didn't want there to be any appearance on the part of the Bureau to uh, act in any way other than that it was totally responsible for uh, conducting itself in accordance with the law and and, uh, with proper procedure. And then the situation here with the Branch Davidians in Waco and the, the ramifications of that. Uh, so it, it was a very, very, uh, uh, those were simply uh, some areas where there were controversy. But the 30 years I was in, which was, uh, you know, the Vietnam War and uh, the aftermath of that and the, the rise of uh, the, the terrorist threat and the, the fights between the Republicans and the Democrats over such things as uh, supporting the Contras and uh, how the uh, U.S. intelligence community got drawn in and how we fought uh, and, and were able to largely keep ourselves out of that uh, mix to the point where there was no, you know, nobody in the Bureau was uh, in any way uh, charged or, or had any uh, any issues come from, from that, which obviously is a situation uh, contrary to what we are looking at now 
with the Bureau, and I'm very active with the ex-agents. I'm the chairman of the Dallas uh, chapter, and uh, we hear so much now from our supporters in public about how uh, disturbed and disappointed they are about what they've seen and heard about what's going on with the Bureau. And so it has become, a, you know, an issue. And I talk with the SAC here, and I see the kind of work they're doing. And we just had an award that our chapter gives to the agent of the year. And I read the, the case write-ups on, on three that, that uh, were nominated here. And it was just fantastic work. And it goes on every day. And yet uh, the Bureau is being castigated by what's coming out of Washington. And uh, obviously it has become a political football back and forth now. And that's a very uncomfortable place for it to be. And uh, the, the new director, Chris Ray, is has got his hands full. Uh, I'll be seeing him week after next at a, a dinner and uh, hope to hear what he plans to do. But, you know, his hands are sort of tied until the grand jury comes back from, uh, I'm sorry, until the, uh, the IG's report comes back and the IG has been given the responsibility to investigate these various issues and see if it does, in fact, go to a, a grand jury or a special prosecutor, but uh, it's been very concerning to uh, to me personally and to the people that uh, I served with, but also to the current personnel and staff of the uh, of the FBI. I need you to do me a favor, sure. Because when I read your book and I got to the epilogue on page four hundred and fifty-one, chills went through me. When I read the first page, third paragraph, could you read that out loud to us? Uh, The one that starts, but in the past few years? Yes. All right. This is uh, epilogue. It's titled, uh, Lessons Learned, Where We Go From Here. Quote, during the past few years, I have seen an increasing level of political involvement in the investigative decisions undertaken by federal agencies, and in particular the FBI. This political encroachment on investigative decision-making by career law enforcement officers is fraught with peril. If an agency is going to be truly free from the partisan political bickering of Washington and from the political dictates of the administration in power, it must have dedicated, highly trained career officers and a leader who is, although politically selected, totally independent from the political process. That was written in 1998. It, it is so applicable for today that, again, when I read it, I was taken aback. Well, unfortunately, it's uh, even truer today than it was when I wrote it. <laughs> it was bad enough then. But, uh, no, it, it, uh, the Bureau, in order to meet the needs of the public and to have the trust and support of the public, must be totally apolitical. Jerry, I, in 30 years, nobody ever asked me what party I belonged to. I, I didn't belong to any, but they never asked me. Uh, they never asked my position on a political issue. And I was certainly never asked or tasked to carry out any sort of a political uh, process in, in deciding and working our cases. To me, that is just absolutely, totally outside of the realm of any sort of appropriate activity on the part of the Bureau. So obviously the allegations that have come up and some of the chit-chat that I've heard back and forth uh, has caused me great concern, and I think great concern to everybody who has served in or is serving in the Bureau, and it's got to be taken care of. It's got to be rooted out if it existed, and and I think everybody's entitled to defend themselves, uh, so let's don't jump to conclusions like you'd see in a lot of uh, tweets these days. 
uh, let's get the facts, uh, and if the facts warrant, let's take action to make sure the Bureau stays a totally apolitical uh, and nonpartisan organization to carrying out the functions it's assigned by law. In my 30 years, I never had a problem doing that. I was never given directions that would in any way have violated that, and you know, I'm concerned, and, and these were some pretty, uh, you know, we had some uh, pretty rocky times those 30 years. Today's Bureau hopefully has got a leadership in place now that will take these uh, issues, resolve them, and then staunchly march ahead as a nonpartisan uh, organization that is going to do its duty according to the law and nothing else. Well, I also will have an opportunity to meet Chris Ray. He's actually coming to the Philadelphia office, and I've been invited to be there as he addresses the current agents and retired agents. So I'm looking forward to the hearing. By the time this is posted, I would have uh, had that opportunity to, to hear what he has to say. As you said, in my 26-year career, I don't remember anything about anybody asking about politics or me even expressing my political opinion, which I have the right to do at home, but sure. never expressing it or discuss it at work. So, it, you know, you're right. This is very disturbing. The most disturbing thing is the Bureau is doing some really excellent work. Uh, yes. People are really pulling hard, uh, you know, and, and trying to do the job correctly. And if they have the general public become either indifferent to or even opposed to lawful actions and activities, it's going to make the job almost impossible and certainly more difficult than it even is now. I am going to put that paragraph in this episode show notes. I encourage people to buy your book, but if they... Uh, if well, they, no, I'm if not going to get anything out of that because I've already been paid off for my book. So. <laughs> Okay. Let me reword that. I encourage listeners to read your book, but if they don't have the opportunity to do so, I'm going to make sure that I put the paragraph that you read in the episode show notes so they could read it, realize it came from 1998, and get get a few chills themselves. Well, I appreciate that, and I uh, I still have a son in the bureau at Quantico. It's got 32 years in. Uh, I have uh, three children who worked in the bureau, uh, and uh, even my mother worked in the bureau. Uh, so uh, you know we have a family connection to the ongoing activities as well. I wasn't aware of that. So we're three generations uh, that uh, believe in the organization. I, I still try and do everything I can appropriately to support it. Uh, and I think that uh, it is a absolutely necessary organization if we're going to maintain our democracy. Perfect. I know that it's been a while since you left the FBI, so could you give us a, a quick snapshot, because I'm looking at your, your, your bio, and there's no way that we could cover all that you've been doing since you left the FBI. So could you give us a quick snapshot of some of the things that you've been involved in? Okay, well, when I retired, I set up a um, international security consulting company uh, to do uh, threat assessment, uh, risk analysis, crisis management, uh, even executive search. I was able to bring my, my wife in to work with me, and we brought on uh, a number of, of uh, retired agents uh, to work with us, and we were focused primarily on uh, international uh, activities. We have been in, uh, on every continent except Antarctica, and uh, 
in 87 countries uh, doing the work. Uh, I also became active uh, in the Crime Commission and was chairman of the Greater Dallas Crime Commission for three years. I was um, also uh, selected as the uh, chairman of the board of the Southwest Law Enforcement Institute. Started up uh, a, uh, an organization in Washington that I'm still associated with as the uh, chairman of the board of the Middle East Media Research Institute, known as MEMORY. Then also uh, did a four-year stint as the uh, president of the Law Enforcement Television Network, where I also did some editorial comment uh, on a weekly basis. And let's see, what else have I been doing? A trustee for the Center for American International Law, which uh, is still an ongoing responsibility. Uh, there's a lot to do after you retire, not only work-wise, but in involving yourself with positive organizations. Another one that I work with is the Transnational Threat Project of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, doing uh, doing great work through this Transnational Threat Project. Uh, and I get a chance to stay with uh, Bill Webster. Uh, he's the chairman of that project, and uh, I enjoy working with him uh, when I get back to Washington on, on those events. So uh, all I can say is all you need to do when you retire, uh, in addition to making some additional money is look around for opportunities. You can do significant service. I became president of the Dallas Rotary Club, which uh, was a very um, rewarding uh, activity as far as dealing with uh, the public issues of, of uh, education and uh, helping our, our youth uh, meet the crisis of uh, the day. So there's just a lot of positive activity available to uh, retired agents, and uh, I hope that uh, most will find a way to continue their service, but through other means. So I always like to give my guest the last word. Well, I am glad to learn about and have seen uh, the work you're doing. I, I think it's uh, important for those who have served in the Bureau and, and have the uh, capability to comment and uh, to become involved to do so. I hope your audience continues to grow and that you'll uh, continue this uh, on into the future. And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Buck Reville. You'll find a couple of photos of him out in international waters during Operation Goldenrod. There are numerous newspaper articles about the case and prosecution. And there is a link to his book, A G-Man's Journey, A Legendary Career Inside the FBI from the Kennedy Assassination to the Oklahoma City Bombing as well as that paragraph he wrote in 1998 that is so applicable for today. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of this episode's show notes at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to this from a podcast app, you can share it directly from your device. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review so that every Thursday morning, the next episode magically will appear on your phone. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you, but I do want to know if you've been watching The Looming Tower on Hulu, the 10-part series about 9-11, the FBI, and the CIA. It is excellent. I highly recommend you watch it. There's more information about the TV series 
in my April reader team email. And next week, I will have an interview with one of the agents who knew John O'Neill and Ali Soufan. I think you'll really enjoy that episode. In the meantime, if you're looking for good crime fiction to read, I would suggest my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. The book is available at Amazon.com as an ebook, paperback, and audiobook. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.